Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Want to teach your kids financial literacy but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. This is a weekly conversation uh, with someone that I find truly inspiring. Hopefully, it's with someone that will leave you truly inspired as well. My goal on this show is to talk with guests that have a great story to tell or who have achieved something remarkable in their lives through their story, hopefully get inspired myself, perhaps inspire you too. Um, if you want to listen to some old episodes, osherginsberg.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Osher Ginsberg. Uh, my guest today, the actor Grant Bowler. Find him on Twitter at Grant Bowler, G-R-A-N-T-B-O-W-L-E-R. It's a really inspiring chat. We talk divorce, dedication, discipline. It's pretty interesting. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, what's going on with me? I'm back in Bondi, uh, back in Bondi Beach in Sydney. I'm in Sydney for work for a couple of weeks, which is bloody wonderful, but it's also kind of odd. Um, there's a lot of triggers around here for me because it's Bondi, right? And so since 2000, I've lived in one, two, three, four, I've lived in five different houses within one kilometer of where I'm sitting right now. So, uh, you know, it's fair to say there's a lot of memories for me here, good ones and bad ones. It's a bit overwhelming at first, a bit overwhelming. I'm glad I'm drinking coffee again, though. It's making it easier. Um, 
But when I get overwhelmed, I tend to I tend to retreat into solitude. It's a defense mechanism, I know, but it's it's not really that good for me. So lately I've been learning that I just have to do the exact opposite. The exact opposite to what my reactive nature wants me to do. So for example, last night it was pretty early, it was like seven o'clock. A mate texted me to say, Hey, come to this party down the street, we're here, I'll meet you out the front, I'll walk you in, it'll be great. Come and say hi, there's some new friends of mine. So I lied to him and said, oh, I'm tired, I'm jet lagged, I'll think about it. But then I hung up and I was like, come on, Ginsburg. So I texted him back 10 minutes later, I said, I'm going to be there. Um, and I pushed out the door and I went up there and then um, I stood in the kitchen of someone I'd never met before up in North Bondi and sang power ballads with some new friends. It was actually pretty good, but I, for a while, like, it would have been really easy for me to not to move because I was just like, oh, new people. And I was kind of afraid. I don't know, it's completely ir- irrational for you to listen to, but it's, it's my truth. Um, but, you know, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, it was about when the second bottle of tequila got drained and, you know, people were saying something to me and then four seconds later saying the same thing over again. I just kind of vanished, smoke bomb, got out of there, and got home, sit on my couch and watched the end of Batman Begins on the telly, which was good. Um, but I got out, I saw some mates, met some new people, I got home. That's a victory for me. Like new people that I've ne- never met before? Come on, man. I managed to do it. I felt like the success kid on Reddit with a fistful of sand, you know? It was, it was a good moment. Uh, but I'm happy to be back in Australia. I'm thrilled to be back working. Um, honestly, I'm even happy to be bringing you this interview today. Um, we recorded it a couple of weeks back. You hear me talk about my impending 40th birthday, which, as you know, was a couple of weeks ago now. But my guest today is the actor Grant Bowler. Uh, he was... 16 years old in Brisbane, he would go to private school during the day in his uh, school uniform, and then at night, he would take a bus into the valley, uh, which was fairly seedy in the late 80s when we were talking about, and he would be the bouncer for a strip club at 16. Um, Needless to say, we get into that, but he was a fairly... uh, Fairly intense young man, but he managed to harness that ferocity and channel it into a very, very successful acting career. As he and I discuss, he's been in just about everything. Uh, he's been in Lost, True Blood, All Saints, Ugly Betty, the breakthrough sci-fi series Defiance, and about 30 other credits to his name. He works, he works harder, and then he works some more when he's done working harder. We get right into what made him kind of be able to push through this just insurmountable adversity around his life in LA with, it's incredible when he talks about this, over 100 denied auditions, bankruptcy hanging over his head, two kids to feed. How he got through that and emerged on top will just blow your mind. Grant has some deep, deep wisdom regarding facing challenges, regarding relentlessly pursuing your vision and never, ever, ever quitting. Um, At the start here, and I talk about the magic of divorce, um, growing up in Brisbane, and just the impermanence of existence in LA. This is a a fantastic conversation. I'm really, really grateful to Grant for his time, for letting me into his house to come and do this. And I'm just thrilled you can listen to it. Once again, follow him on Twitter, at Grant Bowler. Let him know that you heard him here. If you hear something that resonates with you, tweet him, let him know. I hope you enjoy this. I'll talk to you on the other side. This is Grant Bowler, Venice Beach, in his kitchen, while we drink cups of tea.
Well, I'm just grateful we can do this because we, we actually kind of did this once already. We did this in my old house. Yeah, we did. Uh, in Studio City. It was for... It, it, I had this idea that I want to do long-form interviews and I want to take the portrait of someone. And very nice houses, I remember. It had very low furniture. Uh, yes. Um, that house has uh, disappeared into the... <laughs> <laughs> through the magic of divorce, I have went had away. Similar magic, so uh, <laughs> I understand. You know, I ended up. I think, funnily enough, at the time we were doing that interview, I was living in one mate's art studio, his art studio in Topanga. It had no running water, no bathroom. I used to pee off the edge of the doorway into a culvert, and I'd take two glasses of water down at night, one to drink, one to brush my teeth with. That's how I was living. And then I had another mate, Steve Moyer from True Blood's Jeep, his old Jeep that he couldn't bear to part with. Now, you can imagine what shape that was in. He couldn't bear to part with it. Um, and I was driving around. I had, yeah, I had a suitcase full of clothes. That was it. That was it when we were doing that. So your disappearing act happened immediately after my magic trick. Well, that's... I had... <laughs> yeah. Uh, firstly, thanks for having me in your home, Grant. Oh, that's lovely, isn't it? Beautiful. It's great to be here in Venice. I had no idea how much trouble I was in. Yeah, I went back and I, unfortunately the recording of that interview doesn't exist anymore. If it did, I would ask you if it was okay if we could air it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. that recording doesn't exist anymore. What happened to it? Um, through the stuff gets lost, man. Yeah, when, when you yeah. break up a house and yeah, things does, go in boxes, it? and yeah. I don't know where it is. But I found the transcript. I found oh. the transcript of it, and um, but I, and I saw the date that it was, and yeah, it was I. It's kind of interesting, like when. You're in a relationship that is uh, failing. Mm. Just how much I wanted to believe that it wasn't. Just like how much I wanted to, how in denial I was. I was in this beautiful house. You were in my house. I was like, I was so proud of this thing that we'd built. I was like, isn't everything awesome? Look, everything's shiny. And inside I'm like, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Your internal bullshit meter's going off. Um, you know, isn't it funny that we identify with, like, when a relationship is failing, we think we are. And, and it's not necessarily the truth. You know, it's taken me a long time and a lot of distance um, from my, you know, from, from my divorce to, to realise that, you know, neither one of us was a failure. You know, we were both trying really, 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 really hard. Yeah. Uh, and two good people trying really, really hard. But, um, you know, but, uh, yeah, the relationship failed. And, you know, but, yeah, that denial. Dude. You know, that, that incredible denial that this is okay. This is all right. I should have, in retrospect, known that my relationship was in a lot of trouble when I stopped talking about it. Because oh. I stopped talking about it a long time before it ended to other people. And it, in retrospect, I understand it was because I didn't want the scrutiny and I didn't want other people's feedback. I was frightened of it. Mm. Because, you know, I wanted it to last forever. And so I didn't really want anyone to know what... what I was the other way. I was telling everyone how great everything was. (laughs) (laughs) Through the power of positive thought. And to you... But but I'm glad you mentioned it because it's... We both tried super, super hard. We... It was like... I don't know, like if you're ever moving house and you're stuck up a tricky, you know, turning staircase and you're both holding a sofa and you're trying to get around the corner and someone's arm starts to shake and you're like, I really want to keep holding my, my, my arms are just going to fail. Like, yeah. just, it's not that I don't want to get this sofa up the stairs, but it's just, it's poof, and you drop it and you go, sorry, we both, we tried. And you know what? Sometimes the sofa's not actually meant to be upstairs. <laughs> Boom! I mean, look, a mate of mine... That's solid, enough, man. Well, you know, a, a mate, the mate of mine who gave me that art studio to live in, um, 
up in Topanga, which is, you know, the last vestige of the hippie. I mean, Jimi Hendrix used to live up in Topanga. And it's pretty amazing. It's, it's very, very close to Los Angeles. It's only 10 minutes from, 15 minutes from where yeah, we sit. It's never incorporated as a city and as such has never joined like the electric or the sewerage grid, which means it still, in 2014, gets to write its own rules. Amazing place. It's pretty wild. Can't be developed, can't be built up because of those factors. Um, you know, he said to me, he said that the, the, that the idea that um, you know, there is one relationship that will sustain us through our lives was conceived at a time when people got married at 14 and they were dead by 29. And that's, the, that's actually true. So, uh, you know, um, although for many people it does still work that there's one primary relationship through their life, and that's fantastic and wonderful, it's not necessarily A, the norm anymore, and B, it's not always the best thing for both people, you know, like in those circumstances. That relationships, maybe because we live so long now to like 85, 90 years old on average, you know, they have a lifespan. And when you're dead by 28, it's all, it's all wine and roses. But, you know, when you've got to be together for 50, 60 years, it's a different story. My brother, my eldest brother, he talks, I've, one of three, one of four boys, sorry. My eldest brother uh, has been married now 16 years. And he very gallantly was trying to come to my aid towards the end. And he said, listen, me and my wife have had five different relationships. We mm. met when I was in final year uni. She was in second year uni. So it was like pants ahoy, beers at the rec club. It was, you know, we were 24, 22, talking late into the night about the problems with the world and how we can solve everything. Yeah. And then he graduated and was earning money and supporting both of them. They were living together back in the day when he actually moved out of home, mm. um, supporting both of them. And then he uh, went to do his master's after she graduated, and then she's supporting him. And so it's like three relationships by this point. And then he moved to London, and, da, 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 and now they've got kids. It's like mm -hmm. the relationship these two people have does not in any way, shape, or form resemble what they had in the beginning. At all. And there's sometimes, I think, where you can make those twists and turns together. And then there's sometimes where literally the journey that we are on these days in the modern world in life just it pulls you in different directions, you know. And, and look, I honestly believe that for myself, you know. That, um, oh, you know, it's easy when you, you lived in one town and you, you, you know, you're born there, you're raised there and you die there and you never travelled, you know, more than 200 miles from home, which is the reality for most people even up until the 1940s or 1950s. The majority of people never travel more than 200 miles from where they were born. So it's easy to stay together because there's really not that much else to do. The problem is when, uh, you know, you've got a world where that's open to you and, you know, and you're both kind of being pushed and pulled by a million different things. It makes it trickier, I think, you know. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know, you know, but it, it's definitely a factor. All I can say is that the last time we sat down... I had no idea how much trouble I was in personally. I had no idea how much trouble I was in spiritually. I had no idea how, how void I was within. Mm. And the person that I am now, I love being me right now. And unfortunately, I had to get dragged behind a ute through a, a gravel you know, track and get you know, torn to pieces to be able to put it back together. But I'm grateful that I went through it. You know, two old guys I've met come to mind, and I've never had an original thought. The best things I've ever learned have come from others, and, and, and that's something I had to be taught. But, you know, one old guy used to look at me and say, son, you want to be a great sailor, but you insist on calm seas. <laughs> and that was a kick in the pants. And then another old guy I loved and respected and had the privilege to know was this old guy up in Topanga. 
his name was Richard, and he'd been a uh, scientist. He'd, he'd actually done, he'd done the math that created the guidance systems for the Apollo rockets. And Richard had been like the uh, dean of uh, math or physics at UCLA, was this little hunched over guy, he used to wear a cardigan with a badge that said, I am a rocket scientist. And, uh, and he looked at me once, stared at me long and hard in this cafe, me and a bunch of mates were sitting around, and he said, you know, he said, Grant, you strike me as a guy who trades a lot in potential. And I said, okay. And he said, uh, do you know what potential is? And I said, no, Richard, what is it? And he said, potential is the complete absence of achievement. And nothing's ever hit me harder in my life than that one. Yeah, we all want to be experts on relationships and we all want to be experts on ourselves, but you know, you don't get there by being untested. Truly. Um, <laughs> so, and no one wants the real test. No. We, always, we all want the candy-coloured cornflake test. You know? Yeah, it does. It, 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 it truly does come. <laughs> if it's okay with you, I wouldn't mind it if we covered some of the same ground. Yeah, Because sure. it was a great uh, conversation and I really wanted to share it as widely as I could, which is I'm so grateful we're here because of it. Um, and we're both here in Venice Beach. Mm. I literally live 800 metres from you that way. Uh, I love living here. And we're both a really, really long way from Brisbane. Yeah. Oh, it's a, it couldn't be further from Mount Gravatt without being in Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. What, you grew up in Mount Gravatt, was that it? Mount Gravatt. Yeah. My, my dad still lives there. In Mount Gravatt? Yeah. My mum and dad are still in Mount Gravatt. Yeah. yeah. I was back there a week and a half ago. And the funny thing is, is I went for my old run. Now, I've got two oh, runs yeah. around Mount Gravatt. One's the shorter run, uh, which was when I was smoking. <laughs> and I try and make it. And then there's the longer run from way before I ever started smoking, because I didn't start until I was 19, and I left Macrobat, funnily enough. And, uh, and, um, and that's the one, that's the long kind of scenic one. And I, and I do the long run. And, oh, it was lovely. It was so nice. It was, uh, one, I, I hadn't been running, because, uh, long story, but my, my, my feet have been playing up a bit, but I... Um, I found I could do the run, which is actually nice, because I'm 45 now, and that runs from when I was 17. So there's something nice about being able to do that run. And it was early morning in summer in Brisbane. It was a really lovely, mild morning. And I, I was just running around the neighbourhood, and it was about 18K, and I, all these spots I know, and, and the things that have changed, and the houses that have been redone, and the families that have moved in, and... And, and the streets that have changed, but then the little kind of, you know, corner shops that are, that are still open and, and, you know, and heading back down past Zups and... <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. like Macrovat High, which is, you know, that's yeah. all around. Macrovat Central's pretty much, you know, where, where my mum and dad are. And, and, and it was such a lovely thing because I hadn't been home, you know, to Brizzy in about a year and a bit and... It was just one of those times where you reflect, you know, where I was actually able to reflect on, on how much has changed and how far I've come and how happy I am with where I am now um, and what a distance that is, you know, from, from when I left home kind of, you know, bursting apart at the seams at, you know, 18, 19, you know, just about, you know, shot out of a cannon down to Sydney to do something with my life. It was really interesting. It was just really, really kind of really moving. I had a similar experience when I when I stay in Brisbane. I stay with my my youngest brother. He's got a great place in uh, near the Gabba, actually. Yep. And I and I run along. There's a great path underneath the freeway, and I run like pretty much from uh, uh, Stones Corner 
all the way to um, Gaza Road. Um, oh yeah, yeah, I know, yeah, yeah, yeah I know. It's a great going. run. Yeah, and yeah, exactly the same. Like I remember, like when I first left Brisbane to come back to it, it was like I was going to get a rash if I stayed too long. <laughs> so I'd stay long <laughs> enough to do work, say hi to my family, and get the hell out of there. Yeah. But uh, Brisbane now is not the town I left. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I went to Sydney right after Brizzy um, this last couple of weeks when I was home, and um, Sydney had barely changed. I walked, I like, I either go, as soon as I get anywhere, I either go for a really long run or a really long walk. And, and on this occasion... Oh, it's the best. You instantly know any town you're in. If you do that, you feel at home exactly. instantly. You own whenever, the space. You own whenever the space. I get back to New York, for instance, or, or Toronto where I shoot the show, I'll go for a walk for like five, six hours. Like, I walk and I, I re-acclimatise myself to the city. And, uh, and, you know, in Sydney, I walked from uh, the city where I was staying down to Bondi and then from Bondi back up through Bondi Junction and... Um, and then on to Surrey Hills and, and around behind there. And it had barely changed. That was the interesting thing. Sydney in that time had barely changed. There were a few things that had changed, but bugger all. Especially uh, William Street, nothing had changed. And yet Brisbane had changed again and always. And, and uh, I ended up having a conversation with a couple of people about that. And Brizzy really... Like, I left before Expo. right? Or I think I left... No, I left a year before Expo. So... The Brisbane I remember is like uh, Sally Ann Atkins uh, refusing to have a bus service after 12pm because literally anyone who's awake after midnight doesn't deserve public amenities. That was quote unquote. Um, You know, like you're immoral if you do shift work or something. Uh, It was a big country town and it was really, really closed minded in its attitudes and nobody went out to dinner. I mean, nobody went out to dinner. My old man wouldn't eat pizza. It was too exotic. And... I look at Brizzy today, and I took mum and dad out to the theatre on the Saturday night, and then we went and had Korean or something. Um, and, you know, my parents are awesome. They'll just pick up anything I, you know, I decide to test them with, you know. And, uh, and, and uh, we had a great night, but I couldn't believe how busy it was and how crowded Southbank was. Like, that whole area is incredible. It's nuts. Stones Corner, uh, the Gabba, all of those parts of town have literally just, uh, South Brisbane, have blown up. It was nasty when I lived there. Well, I used to work in South Brisbane. I used to work at a little advertising agency, Knowles Brister, uh, down in South Brisbane. And South Brisbane was pretty rough. There was like two pubs. There was nothing else. And you wanted to be careful when you went in there. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We went, to, um, we went to very similar schools, you and I. Mm. Grey shirts and, uh, <laughs> and a lot of rugby. Um, yeah. And um, I'm... I, I think we have it in common that we both didn't really fit in. Yeah. Um, and we both got bullied. Yeah, I got terribly bullied, yeah, in my first couple of years of, um, of school. Yeah, GPS private school. All 1,500 boys packed in together. Couldn't think of a better idea than that. There's a book about that called Lord of the Flies. I remember reading Lord of the Flies. At school, at right? At school. And thinking, I'm there. I'm on the island. I was piggy because <laughs> I was really fat. <laughs> I was fat. And I had um, asthma and like bronchitis. I couldn't run. Fuck, man, you got the you got a <laughs> rugby school. You yeah. got the full deck. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't run halfway around a football field. And we used to go for PE, and I dread it. I just dread it. And I was pretty tubby because I'd had. I said this long story about my feet. How I've always had a bit of trouble. I've always had this t- really kind of chronic tendonitis in my heels, 
And for a while when I was a kid, they were thinking about taking me off my feet, putting me on, uh, on crutches or a wheelchair for a couple of years to try and get rid of it. Yeah, that would have been great for you at school. <laughs> Social life would have just <laughs> gone through the roof. So, um, yeah, I would have been crippled as well. So, uh, so anyway, yeah, and I was never kind of um, great on the running stuff. And, yeah. And when did, was your, what, what was your bullying about? Uh, I was super fat. Yeah. and a weird last name. <laughs> 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 had a you know Jewish sounding last night when I was at a Christian brother's school and um and I was oh. just really fat and I had boobs. I was fourteen. Thirteen, boobs. fourteen. Well, well yeah. I had I was I was really big. I was like I think I cracked the ton by about fifteen quite easily. Really? Yeah. You're was, a big boy. I was. It was horrible. It was the worst. And I I'll, I'll, I remember that feeling of just like complete dread being on the way to school, like, here we go again. Every yeah. every day. And just yeah. like it just wasn't safe, man. It didn't feel... The funny thing is, is when the swarm leaves you, it lands on somebody else. That's what I noticed. You know, I had the experience that there were like the two... There were two guys in my year who were super cool. And I became the third guy. And the three of us hung out together. I thought that was awesome, you know. And we were like a triumvirate. And I thought, finally, you know, I'm in with the... You know, in the crowd that, you know, where I'll be safe, basically. Because high school's about staying safe. Totally. And... Um, and anyway, and you know, as and push comes to shove, and of course, you know, three's a crowd, and this whole kind of triangle blew up, and and I got, you know, kind of pointed at by these other two, you know, who were the cool kids, and so it was like I just watched these like hundred kids, you know, which kind of bled out to the whole school, just turn and follow suit, and with the kind of lack of foresight or actual kind of like um, intelligence that that teenage boys show. You know, but yeah, it was horrible. I couldn't. I remember I couldn't walk between one class or another. I would hide, or kind of dawdle in one class because there's five minutes between periods, until there's just enough time to run to the next one. So I couldn't be like taunted in between classes. What changed? Uh, my brother. My brother. He. Um, it took a long time. My brother had left school the year before. He'd gone to the same school. He'd left. My brother was a, was he had a very short solution to some long problems, and he uh, he finally heard about it from me because I was terribly distraught and uh, you know just really depressed, and I was having a, I was struggling really badly, and we didn't talk. I mean, we kept everything from each other we possibly could. We were very secretive with each other, but he finally figured out something was going on with me and. And I told him, and um, unbeknownst to me, the next afternoon, he, or the next few afternoons, he waited for these two blokes um, outside of school, and he found them. And you know, he was a grown-up with a beard and drove a V8, and I think he basically just threw them over the hood of his car and told them that you know, if they ever wanted to make it home, they'd cut it out. Wow, I miss those days. <laughs> Like I miss it. There's simple solutions, and everyone was well, just like, "Yep, that's pretty much what happens." <laughs> well, and you know, I remember when the coppers used to like, you know, they pull you up and they'd like give you a clip and they tell you to go home, stop being stupid. You know, I mean, that probably saved my life. You know, I don't know. I mean, I look at my kids, and I'd never put my hands on my kids, but you know, I also kind of miss when you know they were a little kind of more wary of their teachers and a little more wary of authority. I've know? talked about I've talked about this on the show before. My my ex-wife was aghast, aghast that I was given the strap at school. Oh yeah. I was came too, yeah. <laughs> and I don't quite know how else to put this, but 
I needed it because mm. I was a right little fuckhead. Mm, mm, and mm. It what was, are you going to do? It was the thing There could have been a really long way to talk me around that. Right? But it was the thing that was like, oh, right, there are consequences. If I open my mouth and say something like that to that person, mm. there's a consequence. And it snapped me out of it. And, you know, I'm there's, not going to say it's the right thing to do, but at no. the time it was how I got the message and it was a message I needed. It's interesting, you know, because I was kind of the opposite of that in a sense. And, and what, what it was with me as a kid was if you came at me and, and gave me a flogging, you know, I, I would ask you to give me another one. I was that kid, you know. And be just so that, you know, you'd break your arm whacking me before, you know, before I'd fall over. And you get them, you get those kids, and so with those kind of things, those kind of kids, it doesn't work. In fact, it's counterproductive because they'll feed on it. I fed on that kind of thing, um, which is probably why I, you know, I, yeah, I don't have any kind of um, like philosophical objection. I just, I don't want to create another me out of either of yeah, my right. kids. Um, but I remember my housemaster at school, Normie Hunter, who had responsibility of me. He got me, and and his way of getting me was. Whenever I get in, in trouble, he 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 would just be so devastated. He'd take it so personally, and and he'd apologise to me about his failure failure as a as a mentor and a counsellor and a, and a housemaster. And I'd feel awful. I feel bloody horrible every time I got in trouble. And then Normie, um, you know, I was always in detention. I was like, I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't play any sport consistently. I really had. No place in that GPS system, but Normie ended up making me house captain. Now, I'd never gone to chapel, because you're meant to go to chapel every day, every day. I had never, in four years, attended chapel. So Normie made me house captain. And the net result of that was I had to go to chapel every day to mark the kids <laughs> off the roster. And, and the responsibility, the, 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 the fact of being responsible for all these other kids actually straightened me up. He was a clever man, Normie Hunter. Right. He was a very clever man. I don't condone... I'm not trying to say that I condone hitting kids to pull them in a line. No, listen, I've, I got clipped a few times in my life where, um, you know, to be honest, I, yeah, A, I absolutely bloody needed it, and B, it was, uh, it was the best thing for me. And funnily enough, on that point, you know, you talk about the bullying and all the rest of it. The thing that pulled me out of all of that, whether or not, you know, how, how it ended or not, the thing that saved my life was I actually ended up, um, and this is, uh, this is common for a lot of kids, but I ended up getting into like martial arts and boxing. And what was beautiful about that was, A, I started to get a bit of confidence about myself and I wasn't as afraid anymore. You started dropping the weight. Yeah, yeah, and I got fit. Yeah, I got really fit. And also I got really handy, you know, and that doesn't hurt. Um, but also I found out how many people around there were that were tidier than I was. And there's nothing better for an angry young man than finding out that the bloke that you least expect could flog you without raising a sweat, you know. And also, you know, I had some older guys. It was like being a teenage boy, and I'll, this was key for me, being a teenage boy in the company of men, like a, a variety of men, because I think, like me, a lot of teenage boys get into opposition with their dads. Uh, you're picking them apart and all of the differences between you and all the things about them you don't want to end up growing up to be, which is natural at that part of your life but you know I got to be in the company of a lot of grown men and it was in their company I started to figure myself out you know yeah. and they'd give me a flogging if I if you know like literally 
You talk about spanking your kids. You go walk into a fighting gym and play up as a 16-year-old kid, they will hand you your ass on a plate. One bloke I was mucking around too much, he busted three of my fingers, two of my ribs and broke my nose in one afternoon. I mean, not a half a flogging. These days he'd be in jail for the rest of his life. I still keep in touch with that bloke. He's a mate of mine. Now, I... um. Because we went to similar schools, I didn't want to ask you about this. And I've, I went to the school. I was one of four boys. All my mates were boys. Yeah. Uh, by the time I was eighteen and got spat out the other end, never met a girl. Never. No clue. Didn't know how they worked. Knew that I was supposed to do stuff with them. Yeah. But Biological didn't, stuff. Didn't know how at all. No. No. Um, I'm the same, mate. One brother. Um, four years older, and he, you know, and when your brother's that much older than you, he doesn't want to hang around you. You're an idiot and very uncool. Don't come near me. Too much of a gap to talk stuff through with, you know. And yeah, fifteen hundred boys school, and 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 also the time. You know, I remember when I got to thir- twelve or thirteen, there was no talk, there was no instructional video on boys and girls. I came home and there was a. Um, there was like one of these animated books. It was like... Where did I come from? Yeah, who am I? Where did I come yeah. from or something? Sitting on the end of my bed. No conversation, no discussion. Nobody ever explained where the frigging book came from, let alone why it was on the end of my bed. I read this thing. I already knew most of it, right? It was probably a lot drier than my, my mates in class were talking. But um, that was the length and breadth of the instruction. Emotionally, nothing. And uh, for me, it was... After I started, you know, like after I started kind of down the path of getting into all of this, um, you know, living in these fighting gyms and all I wanted to do was, was, you know, was kind of run, bleed, sweat every afternoon of the week. Um, I started working in nightclubs quite young. We've had this conversation, haven't we? Bouncing? Bouncing, yeah. And I was like running, um, in the, this is pre-Fitzgerald inquiry. And Which was, uh, I'll just point that out, there was like a... Let's just say that things weren't really above the books or no, on the I'm, books in the, between the Queensland police and the nightclub industry in the late 80s. In the valley, in Fortitude Valley in particular. It was all straight in the city. It was just the valley. And yep. there were three particular individuals who I won't mention now who were the linchpins. One of, them, one of, their, God, one of their daughters is my goddaughter still to this day. Um, and I started working down in the valley uh, at a couple of places. I think I was 16. I was running the door on one of them. Wow. And so I had this weird... Dude, you must have been serious. You were 16, bouncing in the valley. Running the door on a club in the valley. You must have had some chops about you. Yeah, I was a nutcase at that age. I really was. I was very, very um, confused young man, let's say. But the funny thing was is I'd I'd, I'd worked down the valley Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, right? And, of course, that meant that Friday I had to go to school. Friday morning, first two periods, was a double period of Maths 1. And my teacher, Maths 1, was notorious at being a bastard. But I also DJed down at the roller skating rink in Macravat. Skate. Skateway. Skateway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I DJed down at Skateway. So anyway, uh, it turned out that my Maths 1 teacher's kid used to roller skate down at, the, at Skateway on a Saturday morning, which is, or Saturday afternoon, which was the shift I used to DJ. So I made a deal with him that if he let me sleep through this first double period on a Friday and I made sure I kept my grades up in Maths 1, 
I keep an eye on his kid down at Skateway and make sure the kid didn't get in any trouble and it was a wash. Everyone would go home happy. Skateway Macrobat was rough as guts. Skateway Macrobat was rough as guts. So we both went home happy and, and me getting a bit of rest on Friday morning after I'd worked all night on the door um, kept me in tune for the rest of the day at school. So it wasn't really hurting anybody. Uh, so I had that deal running at school and then, yeah, I used to work down the valley. Now, the net result of this was I worked in one place that was a notorious kind of, I don't know, gay, tran- tranny bar um, in the valley. Everybody will know the name of it who's in Brisbane and, and I worked down there for years. It's not that anymore. I do believe it's not that anymore. It was, now, it was then bought by one of the guys I went to school with. Oh, is that right? It's on the corner, right? I think we're talking about two different places. I think we're talking about two different places. So anyway, then there's a place two doors down that was a strip club, both owned by the same guys, conglomerate guys. And so then I started working down there. So I had this dual thing going on where by day, it, it was weird, man. It was like the redneck Superman. By day, I had um, my long socks and my shorts and my school, private schoolboy uniform on. And then at night, I would, I would um, catch the bus... I catch the bus in and a cab home because there are no buses after 12, <laughs> except if you're the devil. Um, I'd, I'd go down the valley and I'd, I'd work all night um, running the door in a strip club. So I had a very polarised view of girls by the time I'd hit 18. Let's just put it that way. No doubt. Um, you can find Grant on Twitter. He's at Grant Bowler <laughs> uh, if you want to follow him and, and get more of this every day. Uh, tweet him, let him know you heard him here. So at what point... Did you get tired of this? You moved to Sydney, and when did you go like, you know what, acting, that's, that's what I'll go and do? Well, it happened in reverse. I left school. I started a degree in communications at QUT, which was a good course. It was a difficult course. I started that. I, yeah. I, I finished six weeks later because it was too hard. That's I, what I did. I dropped out. I dropped out too, first semester. <laughs> so, um, but I will say this. B block at QUT, hottest girls. Dude, by it was far. the girls and the beer, and I wasn't ready. So um, I, I lucked out. I literally, if I had have done that degree and then done a master's, I would have got the job that I got when I dropped out of school. I got a job uh, as a junior copywriter at this wonderful advertising agency in Brisbane, and I started writing ads. Now, two things happened. Like I say, you know, like my dad, you know, at that time was a ceramic tiler, and my mum was an insurance agent. Uh, both self-employed, both kind of worked for themselves, both, you know, grounded out and, uh, and worked job to job and, you know, worked really, really hard. I had never been around the entertainment industry. I didn't know anybody in the entertainment industry. I'd never met an actor in my life, nor was I likely to in that current life. I thought that to be a male actor, like to be a male dancer, you, you pretty much had to be gay. And that was just where I come from in Brizzy. And because, you know, you wouldn't be a straight bloke and be an actor, you've got to wear makeup. I mean, I'm a redneck at this point, right? Well, you know, I'm growing up, all I wore was an ACDC T-shirt, black cords, white volleys. And anything else was a sacrilege. It, it, was, was, a standard, it was standard uniform, my friend. Crime against God and man. So, uh, I'd never, you know, I didn't understand why actors were actors. It was just a different universe. And then I got this job in this advertising agency. Now, two things happened. The senior writer was this bloke named Harry Scott. And Harry was a great guy, but he'd also been on The Young Doctors. Oh, which is a soap opera from the... Soap opera from the 80s. Late 70s, early 80s. Late 70s, early 80s. And every afternoon when I caught the bus home from school, I used to watch that show. And so when I started working in this advertising agency and Harry was there, all of a sudden I had a human face to put on acting. 
Now, Harry was a good guy. He was a kind of a, you know, just a general bloke. He'd gotten out of acting because the work had dried up and he had a wife and kids and he wanted to support them and come back to Brizzy, where I think his folks had been. So, I, you know, I, I started to realise that actors were people. They're actually human and they could be any kind of person from any walk of life, have very normal lives and, and that was reassuring. And then the second thing that happened was, was we wrote this, or I think, I can't remember. Anyway, we wrote this low-budget women's clothing ad for Splendiferous. Used to, uh, things, uh, things are always better with Splendiferous, I think was the jingle. And we had to uh, go and shoot this ad. And I was tagging along with Harry. And uh, I'm sure this is right. Um, and the, something happened where the male talent fell through, right? And so they said to me, you know, do you want to do it? And I said, what are you talking about? And they said, well, you want to do it. You want to be in this ad. I'm like, oh, you know, like, this is a bit rough. Like, my mates will beat me to death. This is the Holland Park boys I'm hanging around with. You know, they, all they live for is to get into fights. And if you look different, you're in trouble. So I'm like, you know, oh. And they said, well, we'll pay you the fee. And I said, how much would this bloke have made? And it was like $8,000 or something. It's ridiculous. So, okay, I'll do it. $8,000, 1986 money. It's like $4 million. <laughs> this, this is what we're talking about. It's this guy who shagged me right now. This is Dr. Evil, right? So I, um, I do the job. Um, basically, it goes on TV, which I'm frightened of. Uh, my mates do see it. They give me a kick and you'll, you wouldn't believe. But simultaneously, I get paid more money than I've ever been paid in my life. And every cute girl that I, well, I come across for the next four weeks in Brizzy says hello to me, unbidden. I don't even have to stand on my hands. So I think this is a bit of all right. And for all the wrong reasons, with absolutely no knowledge, no ability, no craft, and nobody having ever told me I had any kind of talent whatsoever, I packed my bags and moved to Sydney to become an actor. What an idiot. Oh, brilliant. You saw, you saw the sliver, you saw the, 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 the shaft of light, and you yeah, dived. Credit, credit card width, shaft of light. But like, perhaps there's a future for me here. There was nothing to suggest that I was any good at it. In fact, um, when I went to Sydney, I because um, when I got down to Sydney, I, I joined the Australian Theatre for Young People. Now, I didn't know it, but most of these kids had been acting since they were like 12, 13. And, so, and most of the directors were professional directors. In fact, Mark Gall, who's a very well-known Sydney director, uh, directed the first play I was ever in, uh, The Tempest. And the first role I had was Ferdinand in The Tempest, the young kind of lover in The Tempest. And I met my best mate, Felix Williamson, doing this play. It's the first thing I did when I got to Sydney. Now, I auditioned for the play. You had to give a CV of all of the um, acting you'd done. Well, here I am, having never done any. But I thought, I'm going to need a CV, so I'll, I'll bullshit. I'll just lie. That's the best thing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You can possibly do. So I uh, lie black and blue. Some, I, 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 I kind of. I looked up, I went to the library, I looked up three or four titles of plays. I hadn't actually looked up the names of the roles, so I made them up. And then I made up a bunch of plays. I just made up the names, like, you know, uh, you know, um, Startling Forest or, you know, or um, Murder at Marborn Manor, I think was one of them. And I just make up these plays and then I make up the characters. Of course, thinking there's so many friggin' plays in the world, like, they're not going to know all of them, right? So no one's going to check. Who'd check? <laughs> So anyway, I get cast as Ferdinand. And, um, and uh, we get to the final rehearsal. This is the only play I did before, getting, uh, before auditioning for NIDA, right? So we get to the final rehearsal. And at the end of the final rehearsal, I remember this. Mark Gull turns to me and he says, um, Grant, I don't know what to tell you. I didn't believe a single word you were saying. And I looked at him, and quite honestly, I went, is that good? Because <laughs> I didn't actually know whether he was saying a, a really good thing or a really bad thing. Apparently, it was a really bad thing. Uh, apparently, everything I was doing sucked. And, uh, yeah, so... Um, well, it kind of sucked that bad. You then auditioned for NIDA and... Well, the funny thing is, is I ran into Mark Gull years later, like when I was at drama school, and Mark uh, just started laughing, and he said to me, how did you make up all those names of plays? Oh, right. <laughs> he must have seen it and just go like, like just, I'll just give the kid a shot. Give the kid a go. I'll give and, the kid a shot. And, you know, and, and the funny thing was, was that in the end, it kind of worked out. And it was Tony Knight, the head of acting at NIDA, who pushed for me. Um, and I was a very, very lucky boy, because... I, uh, I'd been in Sydney, I'd run out of money, I'd gone back to Brisbane. This has been a common theme in my life. Uh, you know, I'd burned it to the ground, stayed every minute I could, gone back to Brizzy Broke, uh, auditioned in, uh, in Bris Vegas, and, um, and it was Tony Knight, the head of acting, that pushed for me to be, uh, to be um, accepted. And, yeah, and I ended up going to NIDA, funnily enough, with my best mate, Felix. Went awesome. through the same year and lived together. And uh, What is it? Because, like... Worldwide, this is a this is a place that just is renowned for people are just pretty good actors. Just what is it about NIDA that just puts out actors that have such capable? I mean, there's, there's gajillion acting schools on this planet. Mm. What is it about NIDA? Is it that the Australian work ethic combined with the training comes out, or what is it? I think um, perhaps it's work ethic. Um, I think because it's got the cachet it has, you know, I got, I think I auditioned for three drama schools and I got into all three, which was ridiculous. I mean, I know how bad I was as an actor then. Nobody should have given me a place. But anyway. Um, I disagree, but I, man. You would, have had, you would have had a burning intensity of a 16-year-old who was not afraid to stand up to bikers at a strip bar in the valley and, you know... I was a pretty intense kid. Well, yeah. that's the thing. You had that inside you. They would have seen that and go, they like, did. all he has to do is well, learn how to harness it and it's on. The funny thing was, was yeah, like, I did uh, St. Crispin's Day, I did the Henry V speech in my audition and Tony got me to do it to, like, to all of the collected... Um, Graduates, uh, students who are assisting with the auditions, and that's what got me in. And it was exactly that energy that you're talking about that got me in. But um, 
I think with NIDA, it's just, um, you know, uh, like I could have gone anywhere, so I went to NIDA because if you've got the choice, you go there. So I think part of it's that. It's the quality of the student, to be honest. Right. Um, and I think the other part is um, they have a long tradition of being able to pick actors, you know. Australia is, is the first, and, and this is true of New Zealand as well, actually, but Australia and New Zealand both equally um, are, the, are the litmus test, in a sense. There's no money, and fame isn't actually rewarded at home as much as punished. So um, acting has to be avocational. It has to be something that you, uh, that you have to do because no other reason will sustain you through what you're going you're gonna to go through. And so I think what they're very good at uh, as an administration, as, as teachers and lecturers, and they have a tradition of this at NIDA, is in spotting the ones who are going to choose it as a vocation. You have to become like an acolyte. You have to, like, I'm, I'm probably, yeah, I'm less afraid of learning now and I'm more obsessed with acting than I was when I went through drama school 22, 24 years ago. Definitely. So, you, you know, I think people like me and, and, and far more talented people like me survive because we're never going to stop being in, interested in what we're doing. So then when you come to LA and it's such a, a morass of, of individuals who are in the industry for all kinds of different reasons, but definitely by and large not because it's a vocation, you know, um, because there's always been money in it for them, because there's always been celebrity, because with celebrity comes gifting suites and endorsements and free things and getting into nightclubs. See, it's very easy in an environment and like this. Also, it's America. People have celebrated them yeah. their whole life for doing it. Oh, and people will celebrate you here for being pretty, right? Yes. Whereas at home, completely different story. So I think that, you know, Aussies, if they stay focused here, really do tend to eat it up because we are about the work. And all these other things, they're kind of great. Like, you know, I've, I've, uh, you know, I'm on the other side of that hurdle now and it's lovely um, to get given all of that kind of stuff. But at the, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Like, you take all of the bells and whistles away, I'll still be acting. You, you know, if I go home, I'll still be acting. You put me in, you know, in the backwoods of Wales, I'll still be acting. I'll be doing the David Williamson play when it comes up every five years in Cardiff, you know. I can't not do it. I think for a lot of people here, it's a job that they know that they, know they can make good money at. It's not necessarily the level of obsession that we have at home. Uh, you touched on a good point. It's that... It's certainly like this. I'd do this because I can't not do it. Yeah. I can't not have these kind of conversations. I'd yeah. go fucking nuts sitting around my house. You're not, obsessed with human nature and what makes I, people work. I'd do this for free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's to be honest, but that's what it takes to be good at something. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, like, and I've been at it for 20 years. Yeah. And, and, but I, can't, I just can't not have these kind of conversations and I can't not explore or, or you know, just even sitting here with you, like... This is so satisfying to me, having these kind of conversations, connecting with someone like this. It's just, I don't give a shit that we're not in a TV studio. Right. I don't care. I don't care how many people download no, it's the it. conversation that's important. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, but you went on to be quite, you went on to be like the workman of the Australian acting. I was. You were like. I was. You I was were, like the draft horse. You were like Jim's mowing. You were Jim's mowing of Australian you acting. Were, you were just like years. Everything. Everything. Yeah. You know, there was this one night, and I'll never forget it because uh, like, I think four or five of my mates rang me up 
This is in the days before texting and cell phones. They rang me up in the same day and they were all like, mate, you're on every single network tonight. And I did have a night. This is no shit, mate. And still to this day, funnily enough, it's my crowning achievement where I was on every single Australian network simultaneously, <laughs> including the ABC, simultaneously in different shows. It was amazing. And I was like, and everybody just looked at me and went, you've got to stop doing this. Like, you have to slow down and pick your jobs. Now, me at 45, I'm like, I'm happy to slow down and pick my jobs a bit more. But in my early 20s, I couldn't believe anybody had given me a job in the first place. There was no way I was slowing down. And I would take everything. You know, somebody had offered me the job playing gym. You know, from Jim's mowing. And I'd be like, I could play Jim. Yeah, I'll play Jim. I'll get pleasure. But you're meant to be doing this other role at the same time. Doesn't matter. I'll do them both. You know what? I want to I invoke a new Logie Award for that. Ex- and we we're going to call it the bowler. The bowler. Like, if yeah. you have, the most, like, oh, seriously, there must be, like, we can count on one hand the amount of actors that have been on uh, the ABC, Channel 7, Channel 9, Nine Channel, Channel 10, 10. All simultaneously on the same night. Uh, in the same time slot. Same, same time slot. On all different jobs. Brilliant. Yeah. Like not be on the news or current affair or something. It's got to all be drama and all different jobs. That's, you've got to do a lot of work for those stuff. I'd be very interested if anyone else can find anyone that's done it. Um, I think I'm the only one who's ever done it. I honestly do. That's amazing, dude. I know. So I was the Jim's mowing of Australia. So at what point, like, was it because of that? Did you like, at what point did LA become like, I've got to find something else? Yeah, well, I knew I... Oh God, it's like that thing with, um, you know, Richard, you know, um, potential. I knew that there was... I knew that there was, like, um, that I was kind of just missing the boat. And by that I mean that the animal I am isn't really useful at home. So I was always being something slightly different. And that's why I became the Jim's Mowing, was because... There was never really a spot for me, but there was a spot for just not cramped, but just over here. And so I got very adept at covering all of those bases. The first time I actually played the territory that I'm meant to exist in was Outrageous Fortune. And all of a sudden, everything came home to me. I went, oh my God, this is where I'm meant to be. This is where I excel uh, in this territory. And, you know, I'd always, I'd always done the man-woman stuff uh, in Australian TV, you know, really well. And I'd done the man-child stuff uh, really well. And then I could do, the, like, the hard stuff, the cop stuff. And the, yeah. Nobody knew what box to put me in because I'd play across the three of them. So I was playing the dad once I got into my 30s and I'd play the, you know, the husband-wife stuff or the boyfriend-girlfriend, the lover stuff. Uh, and then I'd play, you know, like, the, the, normally the mean cop because they wouldn't see me as the bad guy... But Black Rat Lincoln, the character I played on um, Through My Eyes was the best example, a cop that everybody else was scared of, right? So good guy, but still don't mess around with him. So that animal wasn't quite in our mythology. When I got to New Zealand and I, um, I, I started playing Wolfgang West on Outrageous Fortune, this kind of patriarch who was a shocking criminal, violent, you know, like man who, who would kill you if he really felt he needed to, Um, but also had this kind of ethos and this set of rules and this family that he really loved and cared about, I finally found the territory that is right for me. Um, And the other thing is probably years. The the funny thing is, is I don't think I ever looked as rough as I was on the inside. 
And that happens for a lot of actors. A lot of actors, one way or the other, um, a lot of actors who look rough but are actually quite nice, they can't quite seem to find a spot. Uh, the tricky thing about acting is, is you, you are essentially at the end of the day telling stories and, and stories are about archetypes. And an actor who um, can personify visually an archetype effortlessly will communicate that story more easily with the audience, full stop. Now, there's a million different ways that that can be transmitted and, and that can be done. But I think for a long time uh, I was telling two very different stories, internally and externally. And age uh, started to actually help that out a bit. You know, you just get a bit rough around the edge. Bit of time in the Queensland sun. Yeah, and you get some, you know, you, there's a few scars that build up, and, you know, and you just look a bit rougher and, you know, and all of a sudden it starts to line up, you know. I imagine actually Ray Winston as an actor is a very similar example right. to myself where Ray, you know... Um, in his 50s, all of a sudden the whole thing started to come together. And because Ray's quite a rough lad. But what were those first 30 years like for him? You know, like. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's just. I mean, you look at something like Brian Cranston, you hear him talk all about it. He's like, you have no idea what I did. Like he's like, I'm 50, dude. <laughs> like I've been doing this since I was 18. Exactly. And, you know, it's Malcolm in the Middle turns, Malcolm in the Middle turns up when I'm like 42. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, and then he gets typecast off Malcolm in the Middle and he can't get anything else. Until he becomes until Breaking Bad. Until he becomes Breaking Bad. And then every movie, like two summers ago, it was like everything was... Jackie Weaver, who's a great mate of mine, you know, um, you know and I know you know, you know, is, is a great example of this where, like, nobody... I mean, God love her, and I do love Jackie... Um, you know, we've been friends uh, for a long time. But, you know, no, you know, according to Jackie, you know, like nobody really cared whether she was at a party or not until Animal Kingdom. And then all of a sudden it's vital that she's at every party. And, I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. But a lot of it is, is uh, when the internals and the externals and the whole picture of the performer come together, they gel. And I think for me, like I say, that started to happen in Outrageous. I started to get a glimpse of what what it is that I do that's different than what everybody else does, and then I started pursuing that. I wonder if Jackie's... She might have a shot at the bowler. She might have had a... She might have won that. She would be one of the few, but I reckon actually yeah. she was... She, if I was Jim's mowing, I reckon she was Pam's cleaning. Oh, dude. For a long, long yeah, time yeah. on Australian TV. Yeah, yeah. yeah, everything. She did everything. So there's a thing here in the States uh, called pilot season, yeah. and it starts sometime in the middle of January... Yeah, yeah, later and later these days because of Sundance, the circus that is Sundance. Right. But yeah, mid-January. And it's basically all the networks and the production houses go, okay, so here are all the scripts we've been developing, 120 mm -hmm. different shows. Mm -hmm. We need to cast all these and make pilots and then fly flagpole and see what's going to work. And so actors from all over the world come into town and it's basically like... It's conceivable that someone could buy the ticket and win the $400 million lottery. Oh, yeah. It's also the conceivable. Willy Wonka ticket, yeah. It is conceivable that you can have five five-minute meetings yeah. and boom, yeah. you're, you're on Big Bang Theory. I've actually seen it happen. I can think of a couple of people off the top of my head. And so yeah. it's, it's quite the bait yeah. to bring people. Oh, yeah. Um, do you remember the first time you came here for a pilot season? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I do, unfortunately. Yeah. I remember I, we came over, I think I came over six months in advance to get repped up and to make sure, you know, 
uh, to try and get all the bases get covered. the agent get the visa agent, get it all. manager yeah. visa green or the green, in my case green card da, da, da. and um, and my first pilot season was a complete and utter dud I'd gone with one of the biggest agencies in, in the United States and I'd spent five months setting it up with my manager and nine weeks after we started working together the guy I went with uh, just did a complete flip and decided that no actually he wasn't that interested and put me on the shelf and I didn't get out on another job. I think I went on three auditions. Oh, God. That was a killer. In the meantime, you're I, setting I went, fire to money living here. Mate, in those days, it was 55 cents in the dollar. Yeah. And it was so, like that when I first got here too. Yeah, it was so not I had to cheap. make four bucks because you get taxed 50% at home, right? Oh, so I had to make four bucks for every dollar US. Oh. It was horrific. And uh, my ex got pregnant uh, with our first in that time. So now with no insurance... There was a baby to be had uh, in the United States. That's another way to set fire to money is having, having babies uninsured in the US. Yeah, no, it, it really hurt that first pilot season. Um, and the being rejected part, you know, um, the being put on the shelf by the agency, being rejected, that deal. It was almost like the most heartbreaking outcome that could have happened because I didn't even really get out on many jobs. Uh, I was shelved and, and that was horrific. Back to Sydney, 18 months of digging out of a hole financially, uh, taking every job that I could, being Jim's mowing. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry you even job. said that now. I don't, no, I don't mean to no, compare no, you to that. Mate, no, I love it. I it just, love it just, I was trying to, it just came to my mind. Yeah. I was like, who's a fucking workhorse? Who just, who just <laughs> does the job all day? And it's that's the first thing I could think and of. I should point out, like for people, people who don't know, he's a... Uh, it's it's like a franchise of mowing services of mowing services and it's just like it's King G shorts it's gaiters <laughs> over your over your R M Williams boots and it's, it's a, get the job done no matter it's how like hot a, you, it's pissing a, with rain it's a million degrees outside we'll get it done so yeah back to being Jim's mowing of Australian television and then you know eighteen months later back over again and 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 the second two pilot seasons I did. Um, I did do a lot of auditions. I did, uh, I think in total I did 120 auditions. God, in what, two months? No, oh no, I think each pilot season was like 30, 30 or 40. But in the total time before, um, I mean, I, I knocked over one or two little indie films. But before my first real job that got a kick on, it was 120 auditions. Dude. And what did you... You want to be like, you know, a Joe Civilian... And you go for 120 job interviews and just get caned in all 120 of them. Try waking up for the 121st. It gets hard some days. So it was number 121? No. Funnily enough, I'd run out of money. Everything was gone. I was back in New Zealand shooting Outrageous Fortune. And my agents in the United States called me up. And they said, you've been cast into an HBO series. Now, this was my holy grail. I, like my, the top of my bucket list was to work for HBO. This is 10 years ago, and HBO were doing The Sopranos and Carnival, and nobody had ever seen anything like HBO before. It was like changing the landscape of the industry. And, uh, yeah, you've been cast into an HBO series. And I said, you, there's got to be some mistake. I didn't even audition for an HBO series. They had pulled an old audition tape of mine and cast me off the tape without even ever having a conversation with me. And I had to be in uh, LA two weeks later to start shooting. Um, the reality of that whole story, by the way, is that if I hadn't gone over three times, there wouldn't have been that bank of old audition tapes. Yeah. And that wonderful audition tape I'd done for that other show that went nowhere. 
<laughs> and I was heartbroken because I thought I'd done a great audition. Uh, ended up paying off in the end. It was one of 120. So what, did, what could you tell? Because not everyone's going to do this for a job, no. but everyone's going to face rejection. Oh, yeah. What? Oh, look, I, um, I got to tell you that in those three trips to the States, and that encompasses four and a half years of my life, lost a house, went bankrupt, lost everything. Simultaneous was married and had two children. So I didn't just burn my financial security and future to the ground. I burnt everybody's. So what did you learn about, like, what could people possibly know about what it is to get out of bed? Even go to audition number 10, let alone audition number 100. And you what know, was it that kept you getting out of bed? What was meaning. it? Meaning. You know, the thing is, is what the biggest lesson I learned was meaning. And, and what I learned was this, nothing means nothing. If you've auditioned 120 times and you haven't got across the line, it doesn't actually mean anything more than auditioning once and not getting across the line. It's just thinking that makes it so. So I create the meaning. Now, when the first time I went home and I'd failed, failed, second mortgage on the house at that stage, thinking that was failure, by the way, uh, had a kid, you know, broke back in Australia. Every one of my mates, every, every actor I knew when I ran into him, how did you, oh, you went to the US, didn't you? Why are you back here? And I got to admit to failure. And it was agonising and I would dodge people and I wouldn't want to see them, you know, because, because of my relationship. I thought it was because of, you know, the pain of telling them what had happened. It wasn't about that at all. It was my relationship with failure. Now, the third time I came home, <laughs> no, I'd lost the house, had two kids, uh, was bankrupt, busted out completely. And I'm walking down Hall Street in Bondi. And I run into, like, in any industry, everybody will have this in common. There's one person who you hate, you can't stand, and you hate their opinion more than anything because it really matters to you. They're like the cool kid in school. That person was walking down Hall Street the other way, and I was thinking, well, they won't talk to me. And that person stopped and went, Grant. <laughs> and I went, that's two days off the plane. And I went, yeah, hi. And like, Haven't you been in America? And I went, yeah. And they said, uh, more than once, right? Like two or three times I was reading in, a, in an article. I'm like, yeah. And they said, how did you go? And I was looking at this person in the eye. And I had this terror inside me. And all of a sudden, something just broke free. And I kind of just started laughing. Like I just, I, honestly, it was the biggest laugh I'd had. And I can't remember. I'm howling with laughter. And I said, how did I go? I failed spectacularly. And then I just started laughing harder. And I was like, the first time I thought I'd failed as badly as you could. But then the second time, I failed even worse than the first time. And I thought the second time, that the second time was as bad as you could ever fail in life. But actually, the third time this last time, I managed to fail harder than I had the first two times. And this person looked at me like I was insane, like I was nuts. And said to me, why are you laughing? And I was like really offended and kind of aghast. And I said, because I just figured out it doesn't matter. <laughs> it actually doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And that's what I finally figured out. It doesn't matter. This is my life, you know. Um, if I look at my life today, my kids are in a better position than they were before this whole thing started. Um, everybody's in a better position than they were before this whole thing started. I'm definitely in a better position than this whole thing, before this whole thing started. Nobody uh, lost anything in the long run. We tell ourselves a story. And I think I'm in trouble whenever I make today the finish line. Oh. Do you know what I mean? Holy shit. I call it, I call it, yeah. 
<laughs> I call it finish line fever. And what I'll do is, particularly when something's going bad or, or I perceive something is going bad or wrong, I'll make today the finish line and I'll assess my life and I will come up short. Now, in those years with all those auditions, I was always creating the finish line and going, this is it, this is my life and I've done this. But it's not over. It's not over till it's over. And what I finally figured out on that day on the street is when it's over, I won't know it, mate. I'll be gone. There's only now one thing I'm frightened of, and it's in that last 10 minutes. When I'm lying in my bed and I'm staring up at my kids and I can no longer speak and I'm thinking about my life and what I did and didn't do, the only thing I'm terrified of is the things I didn't do because I was too afraid of what someone else might think. That's it. And that's what I live my whole life in direct opposition to today. Because I call, it's the invisible they. We don't even know we're worried about what they might think until we think past the thinking. Making today the finish line. I'm, I've been so... <laughs> Guilty of that. Dude, dude. Because you think... Like particularly when things come your way, like yeah. for example, when a job disappears. I was like this time last year, I was unemployed. I'm divorced, unemployed, renting a house on the <laughs> other side of the world, spending my rent, savings on my rent, yeah. far from my family and friends, and just waking up on the morning going, "What the fuck?" And what I was, doing? it felt like it was absolutely permanent. Yeah, like this is how it's going to be forever. Yeah, of course. But that's incongruent with the way the planet works. Yeah. Like the basic laws of nature are that everything will change. Including the good times, by the way. Truly. Yeah. There's that old Spanish proverb, you know, about the, the, the old farmer and, and his son finds a horse. Have you ever heard it? It goes no. on and on and on. It's wonderful. And I'll tell it to you some other time. But basically the upshot of the whole story is, is so say this is, you know, four and a half years into my journey that has been 10 years so far. Um, this person staring at me aghast about, you know, why I'm laughing at my spectacular failure. Now, six months later, I'm doing this show for HBO, um, 12 Miles of Bad Road. I'm working with Lily Tomlin and Mary Kay Place and Gary Cole and all these phenomenal, phenomenal, like, film actors. And I, I, do, I shoot two eps and then they ask me to come on permanent and be a permanent member of the cast. And I'm like, and then they say to me, and next year, I'm playing a cowboy. All I do is ride horses and make love to the girl. I mean, this is like the dream role. Texan cowboy. Then they say, you know, next year we want to hire Chris Christopherson to be your dad. And so your job will be sitting around in a bunkhouse in front of a fire talking to Chris Christopherson about life. And I went, kill me. Then J.J. Abrams cast me on Lost. So Monday, Tuesday, I play my cowboy in LA. Wednesday, I fly to Honolulu. And Thursday and Friday, every week for months, I shoot in Honolulu and I go, oh, my God. Now, I fly back to Australia in that time and that same person in Hall Street who was aghast six months ago looks at me and goes, how you going? And I tell him. And they go, see, that's why you went through all those hard times. And I go, what do you mean? And they go, so that you could be here. And I go, no. Same assumption you made before, same thing. No, it's not. See, I could have just as easily gone through all those hard times and stayed failed. Or I could have succeeded without any of those hard times. This is just what happened. It doesn't mean anything. It's just what happened. Again, they're aghast at me and confused. So two months later in L.A., 
the writer's strike hits. First writer's strike for 22 years. The HBO show gets cancelled before ever airing. My time on Lost gets curtailed because of the writer's strike from seven apps back to three or four. And I'm, bam, back on a plane back down to Australia, right? And the frigging industry in, in, in the US is shut down yeah. and my jobs are gone. I run into that same person on Hall Street. Dude, you've got to get like, out of Bondi. <laughs> <laughs> and that same person is like, well, what does it mean now? And I have to say, nothing. It means nothing. It, doesn't, it just happened. It doesn't mean anything. Beware the story because the story is what we hang ourselves with. Good or bad, it doesn't matter. It's, it's, I call it the Santa Claus God, right? When I'm really, really good, God gives me stuff. That's great until I suck. Because then God's got to come along and take something really important off me. So, you know, I'll hang myself with the story if I let myself. But what a lot of people don't realize is that they get the chance to write that story. Yeah, you can make your life or events mean whatever you Because it's all making. made up anyway. Yeah, it's, that's what I mean. Nothing means nothing. Nothing means anything. And, and, and to be honest, not, it's not all, in my opinion, terribly connected either. Stuff just happens. It's, but it's also how you carry yourself while the stuff happens yeah, that defines you as a there's man. There's both, yeah. There's absolutely both. Well, that's character. Right. That's character. I love that. I think it's Antonio Manderas. I can't remember who said this line, but character is a gift that a man gives himself. <sighs> Mate. <laughs> um, I was going to talk about work, but we've gone far beyond that. You're doing fantastically. Um, oh, thanks. Mate. I do think of you when uh, Bachelor is in se- in season. We shoot. Uh, we I do post production at. Um, uh, it's, it's essentially Film Australia, but it's the All Saints Hospital. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So cool. I walk through the glass doors. Been there. Yeah, yeah. I walk through the glass doors. It's still written on the glass doors. At is work. it really? Yeah, that's fantastic. They've left it up there. That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I like that. So every day you walk walk to work. Well, did you know on, in Jimmy Fallon's studio, um, they opened up this cupboard that used to be like his wardrobe, and at the back was uh, when it used to be Henson's set, huh. and there was, they'd painted all of the sewer pipes as Muppets, and he found it, and most guys in the past would cover it straight up or have it repaired. He had a shrine erected wow. to Henson and all of his guys, which I thought was beautiful and really showed who he was. Yeah. He actually had his, his own dressing room kind of shrunk in half so he could erect this shrine to what had come before him in this building at the Rockefeller Centre. He's going to... He'll be on air. I watched him the other night. I watched Fallon's first episode the other night. He's going to be on air until he's 90. Yeah. He really It's really interesting. But isn't that that interesting that that's his character? Yeah. And then what, you know, happens to him in his life? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So... I'm super stoked. I was super stoked when Defiance came along. I'm even more stoked that it's coming back. Uh, Cheers, man. it, It must be... Like, such a long... I mean, the fact that you've done all this stuff has to prepare you for this entirely new form of television that Mm. you're making. Mm. Mm. And you must, like... You know, I think about... You know, you can own... Like, someone asked me the other day, like, all the shit that happens in your life, it's just adding colours to your palette, man. It just allows you to paint with more colours. And so by the time you get to something like Defiance, which happens so much in post, you know, that you're, you're able to... Is it, is it as satisfying as, you know, hanging around a fireplace with Chris Christopherson when you're doing that kind of show? I love, look, I love Defiance. I love my job. Um, it's really interesting, you know, like, God bless him. I, you know, the feedback I got from the network and the studio once they saw the pilot was, 
We're so happy with our choice in me. You know, um, you know, there's nobody else that could have played that role. And the funny thing is, is so much of this business is fit. You fit the role, it fits you, you fit the project. And, and the tone of the project is another big, you know, really important thing too. But um, it was such a fit, that role. When I read that role, I... There's a lot of roles you read and you go, oh, can I do that? And then there's other roles you read where you go, I got that and here's what they haven't put in yet. And it's when you walk in the room with the end that everybody goes, oh, wow. Because the thing is, you're not just colouring in between the lines of what they've written. You're walking in with, yes, and there's da 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 And that's how I always felt about Nolan. I mean, from the first conversation I had with Kevin Murphy, we were literally like spitballing and, you know, and, and, and improvising ideas on who this guy was and how he reacted and responded in the world. And we've actually changed that up a couple of times so far. Season two, I changed him up again. I changed the character a bit. You just, like, in the space of two sentences, described what changes, what's the difference between a, a good actor and a great actor or a good singer and a great singer or, you know, any time that you're art interpreting an artistic uh, notation, whether it be music on a page or words on a page. Um, I'd see it in Idol all the time. Mm. Yes, you're pitch perfect, but I don't care. No, they don't. You know, I'm not invested. No, but when they sing the song, like, and this is why... Uh, I'm singing these words. Like I would say it, and I've used it all the time. I say, in the chorus of Robbie Williams' "Angels," do you get goosebumps? They say yes. I say that's because he believes every single fucking word he's oh, yeah. singing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's imperative he say it. Yeah, and that's the thing. And um, but the way you said, like, here's here's what I'm bringing to it. Like what you brought on top of what they've already got is. That's, that's pretty much it. Okay, two more questions. Um, I, I have, just getting ready for this, I had a look at your Twitter over the last few days. Uh -oh. um, it seems for some incongruent reason, people still give a shit about you not being in Australia. People are still like, what are, you, know. what are you doing over there, mate? I know. It's interesting, isn't it? Well, it's interesting on a number of levels. I get, I get it too, and I don't quite, I'm kind of dull with saying why. <laughs> I find it really interesting on a number of levels. For one, you know... Really? Oh, uh, it's, it's a package. Just, it's a package. I've got a package. Unreal. I have a package. Mate, Amazon Prime? I don't ever leave the house for anything. I bought... This is my favourite thing about living in the States. I bought soap and toothpaste the other day <laughs> and it turned up at my front door. I do the... I've got to admit, the grocery shop comes by yummy.com, which is all the groceries within half an hour delivered, no charge, over $100 order, which is no drama whatsoever. Um, everything these days, yeah, oh, it's shocking. But then, you know, anybody who critiques that hasn't had to drive around LA. Because oh. there's, what, 12, 15 million people in the three counties, and the traffic here will kill you if you let it. You and can do two chores a day, that's it. Yeah, I, drove, I had a meeting in, in Ivar, Hollywood and Ivar. Yeah, not I, well. It took me 94 minutes <laughs> from my house, and that is 13 miles away. That yeah. is 20... Not even 27 kilometres. I have had from here to Burbank, which is you know where the studios are. I was shooting at Universal, yeah, a couple of years ago. Uh, oh, doing GCB, yeah. Um, and uh, it took me one day, two and a half hours to get from Venice to Burbank within the one city. I just laugh. Like, I'm like, I could have been in Noosa by now. <laughs> I could have literally driven halfway to Rocky. Yeah. It's ridiculous. It's, I can only be laughing at it. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, the fact that... What, what would you say to people who ask, why, 
but why are you there? But here's home, right? Here's home. Like, well, the funny thing is, is I'm half Kiwi, half Aussie. That's another thing. And, like, you know, I grew up in Bris Vegas, and, and I did from when I was, you know, very, very young. But my mum's a Kiwi, and I was born in New Zealand. And um, so, you know, I also get, like, well, are you an Aussie or are you a Kiwi? And then, yeah, well, what are you doing over there? And, and when did you go there? And what do you want to be over there? And when are you coming home? And it's, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Like, you know, what are you? And, you know, hurry up. Let me put you in a box. Um, but that's all the story you're talking about, I guess. It's a story, yeah, I don't know. Um, what I know is, is that when it comes time for State of Origin, I will fight any New South Welshman in the room. <laughs> I don't care. Uh, but at the same time, I remember my grandmother and the civil wars we used to have in the living room. Well, my grandmother, my uncle and my mum would all put on their black and white, uh, all black jerseys. And my dad would be the only Aussie supporter in the room. So my brother and I decided to team up with dad and back the Aussies because he looked so lonely when we were kids. So the house would literally be split down the middle. The Bledisloe Cup would be civil war. Um, I know that I'll back the Aussies in the ashes any day of the week. But if anyone bar the Wallabies are playing, um, I'll back the All Blacks against the world. I know that um, Brizzy's where I come from, Sydney's uh, kind, where, where my oldest mates are, but Venice Beach is home. And to be honest, where my kids are is home. And they're five miles from here, you know? That's, that's the best answer. Yeah. I dig it. All right, last question. I am five weeks away from turning 40. <laughs> <laughs> Say goodbye to pizza. <laughs> well, I don't need it anyway. Oh, but what, what, what do I need to know? Um, what do you need to know? I think that, and, and look, I'm, I don't know if I'm unusual or not, but I wouldn't have any year back, I, and I'm grateful for every year that's been tacked on. I think uh, for a, a, a man in particular, um, 40s are real, the best years of your life. I think they're really uncomplicated. I, figured, I think by 40 I'd started to figure out who I am and stop apologising for it or trying to make you think I'm someone else. Um, I actually started having some weight behind my own opinions instead of waiting for other people to put weight on them. Um, uh, I think, uh, I, look, I honestly, they're key. They're just key. I've never been more, ener more directedly energetic, more effective um, in my life than, than in my 40s. So, mate, all I can say is, like, you know, strap yourself into your boots because I've found my 40s awesome. Awesome. 40s is the new 40s. Because <laughs> it's all bullshit, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's the thing. It's like the beautiful thing about, I think that one of the most wonderful things about the world today is, you know, when I was a kid, if you, you know, adults when they got to about 40 were expected to have all of this stuff locked down. And I think we've kind of grown up a bit as a world. And, and we, let, give us, we give each other a bit more of a break now. Unreal. Um, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for doing this twice. No, nah, mate, this has been joy. I've loved every <laughs> second of it. I'm going to take your photo. All right, do it. Unreal. Thank you. And that's the show. Grant Bowler. You can find him on Twitter at Grant Bowler, G-R-A-N-T-B-O-W-L-E-R. -E if there's something in that show there that resonates with you, let him know. Let him know. If you're, if you're a fan of the show, if you would be so kind, if you could tweet out a link to this show, that would be the best ever. That's the greatest thing you can do for me is to tweet out. Um, oshigensberg.com just let people know you're listening because that's the only way I get word out about this show is through you uh, you're the only people that help me out on this so thank you um, 
I hope you have a good week. I'm uh, working this week, which is ace. Um, I'm gonna have to. I got my Vitamix back, and I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to get uh, get on top of something because uh, I'm starting to eat a bit too much again. Um, get one compulsion out the way, the other one pops up <laughs> like a goddamn Hydra. <laughs> How many heads can you lop off? Anyway, one thing at a time. Um, Hey, thank you so much for being a part of this. Uh, I couldn't make this without you. I meant every word I said to Grant earlier on that I love doing this. It's one of the most satisfying things I've ever done and I couldn't do it if you didn't listen. So thank you so much. Uh, I can't wait to talk to you next week. Sleep well, my friends, and dream of beautiful things. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com